Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Danny Casalero. So, Joseph Daniel Casalero, born June 16th of 1947, and who died on August 10th of 1991, was an American freelance writer who came to public attention in 1991, when he was found dead in a bathtub in room 517 of the Sheridan Hotel in Martinburg, West Virginia. His wrist was slashed 10 to 12 times and the medical examiner ruled the death a suicide. His death became controversial because his notes suggested that he was in Martinsburg to meet a source about a story he called The Octopus. This centered on a sprawling collaboration involving an international cabal and primarily featuring a number of stories familiar to journalists who worked in and around Washington DC in the 1980s. These included the Inslaw case about a software manufacturer whose owner accused the Justice Department of stealing its work product, which we're going to go into, the October surprise theory that during the Iran hostage crisis, Iran deliberately held back American hostages to help Ronald Reagan win the 1980 presidential election, the collapse of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, and Iran-Contra. Now, Casalero's family argued that he had been murdered, that before he left for Martinsburg, he had apparently told his brother that he had been frequently receiving harassing phone calls late at night, that some of them were threatening, and that if something would have happened to him while in Martinsburg, it would not be an accident. They also cited his well-known squeamishness and fear of blood tests, and stated they found it incomprehensible that if he were going to commit suicide, he would do so by cutting his wrists a dozen times a fact I agree with. A number of law enforcement officials also argued that his death deserved further scrutiny and his notes were passed by his family to ABC News and Time Magazine, both of which investigated the case, but no evidence of murder was ever found, which I find extremely hard to believe given all the evidence that's come out since his death. In West Virginia, authorities are investigating the mysterious death of a journalist and possible connections to the BCCI bank scandal and the Weapons for Iran case. Wyatt Andrews tells us that puzzling tale. Freelance journalist Danny Casolero told friends he was on to the political conspiracy of the century. He was meeting a source in West Virginia. He was about to discover all. Instead, his body was discovered in a hotel room with 12 slashes in his wrist, but when the local authorities ruled it suicide, the family said, no way. The housekeeper had taken calls threatening his life. And I pick it up telephone, I say hello, and he said to me, you son of a bitch, you's dead. Despite that sounding straight from the movies, the medical examiner today held to the suicide finding, saying Casolero apparently was alone. There were no other contusions, lacerations, or other trauma to the body that would indicate a struggle. In my heart, I remember Danny telling us, if I'm in an accident, don't believe it. Casolero was probing a conspiracy he called the octopus, which involved the Iranian hostage crisis, the Iran-Contra affair, with, believe it or not, all funds channeled through BCCI, the international bank charged with everything from money laundering to fraud. Good afternoon. The common thread within octopus is the infamous Inslaw affair, when a court ruled the Reagan Justice Department stole valuable law enforcement software from the Inslaw Corporation. Casolero's theory is that right-wing zealots sold the software for profit. The money went to Iranian officials who supposedly delayed the release of the American hostages back in 1981, the so-called October Surprise, 
and later went to the back channel funding of the Contras. It's wild, but so many affidavits partly supporting each thread of the theory have been filed in the Inslaw case that Inslaw's lawyer, former Attorney General Elliot Richardson, believes Casolero was close to something. And now we have, with the death of Daniel Casolero, what I think is, is uh, a new and even more compelling reason for a, a full investigation. Unknown to his family, Casolero suffered from MS. There was no publisher as yet committed to print his story. He was deeply in debt. And yet, either way, suicide or murder, investigators from both the House and the Senate are in line to see Casolero's notes. Wyatt Andrews, CBS News, Washington. Now we're going to get into his early life and career. So Casolero was born into a Catholic family in McLean, Virginia. He was the son of an obstetrician and the second of six children. One of his siblings fell ill and died shortly after birth. A younger sister, Lisa, died of a drug overdose in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury in 1971. Casolero attended Providence College until 1968. He married Tyrrell Pace, a former Miss Virginia. The couple had a son, Trey, and divorced after 10 years, with Casolero granted legal custody of his son. He owned a $400,000 home on three acres of land. Kessler's interests included amateur boxing, writing poems and short stories, and raising purebred Arabian horses. He also dabbled in journalism, looking into issues such as the Soviet naval presence in Cuba, the Castro Intelligence Network, and Chinese communist smuggling of opium into the US, according to his own curriculum Viate, although it remains unclear how much he had published. At the time of his death, he had written and published one novel, The Ice King, with Whitmore Publishing & Co. Towards the end of the 1970s, he dropped his interest in journalism and acquired a series of computer industry trade publications, which he began selling towards the end of the 1980s. Casolero sold the company in 1989. However, Casolero wasn't the best businessman and didn't do as well from the sale as he had hoped. The buyer, as I understand it, was a sharp negotiator and Danny couldn't compete with that. So he got a lot less for the business than he wanted and lost money on the deal. Casolero worked for the new owners for a brief period but left. He had difficulty adjusting to being an employee and was forced out. Which I can understand because you're going from being somebody who owned the company and got to be the one that told people what to do to then being an employee that got told what to do. So it's kind of going from like riches to rags kind of thing it's like you own a billion dollar company and then it goes bankrupt overnight and you've just lost everything so i can understand how castellero would have felt going from being the boss to an employee it would not have been a very nice demotion so i can understand that he would have had a lot of difficulty adjusting from being the one that gave the orders to being the one that took the orders so i can understand that very very well how castellero must have felt danny did have money troubles and was always in some kind of debt at one point he was introduced to a guy by the name of robert booth nichols who after hearing about danny's money troubles offered him financial assistance in return for a 25% stake in his house and first right of refusal if he sold it. Which to me seems like a hell of a risky endeavour because a right of first refusal is a contractual right to enter into a business transaction with a personal company before anyone else can. If the party with this right declines to enter into a transaction, the, the obligor is free to entertain other offers. This is a popular clause among lessees of real estate because it gives them preference to the properties in which they occupy. However, it may limit what the owner could could receive from interested parties competing for the property. I mean, this to me is a very high-risk deal to make with someone you only just met and barely know. Another interesting fact to point out is that within a year before he died, Castellaro learned that he had multiple sclerosis. It was still in the very early stages, starting with some general weakness, some double vision. He also kept it hidden and only told a few people. 
Now, just to get back to this bit about the 25% stake with Robert Booth Nichols, there is one other point I wanted to make as well. As I understand it, Danny Casolero came from quite a rich family. I wouldn't say that they were billionaires, but from what I can understand, his father and uh, brother said that when Danny would need money, he could always borrow it from them, and they wouldn't ask any questions, and there were normally no problems. So the thing I find really interesting is the fact that Danny felt that he had to go to somebody that he barely knew that he met during the course of his investigation and asked him for financial assistance and then just offered up his house and 25% of it with right of first refusal just for some financial advice from a stranger that he barely knows. To me, that's kind of a little bit strange, especially if you've got the brother and the father who say, well, look, he could get money from us and we wouldn't ask questions, but yet Danny felt that he had to go and source outside help for his financial concerns. It seems just a little bit weird to me because I, I don't really know that I, if I was in a financial situation where I was in trouble would go to an outside source unless there was a really valid reason to like if I couldn't go to family if I couldn't go to friends then I would just choose some random stranger that seems to know what they're talking about I don't know it, it, it just it's a little funny to me that Danny would decide to jump straight into bed with a stranger about his financial affairs I don't know to me something about that just doesn't sit well with me I don't know whether it's I don't know whether Danny had a, a reason to do that but it didn't sound like Danny had the same money troubles that, that I or someone else like me would have like it seems to me as if Danny didn't really know what he was doing with his money it could very well be that Danny had a valid reason I just don't know what it is and that's kind of the point I'm making here is it kind of seems weird that he goes to a random person instead of family for his money troubles in early 1990, he decided to take up journalism again, and soon after took an interest in the Inslaw case, of which his IT contacts had made him aware of. It's a story you will only see on News Channel 3 at 11. Department of Justice officials were involved in a criminal conspiracy to force Inslaw, a small computer company, out of business. A top-secret government computer program comes back to haunt the U.S. Tonight, you'll see how that program is now being connected to multiple local murder cases. It's 11 o'clock, time for news. Now, from the desert's news leader, KESQ News Channel 3 HD at 11. Hello, I'm Tamara DeMonte. And I'm John White. There are new developments tonight in a year-long News Channel 3 investigation. The Riverside County Sheriff's Department is looking into possible connections between a triple murder back in 1981 and a murder-suicide in 2005 that claimed six lives. It's a story you will only see right here on News Channel 3 at 11. The reporter, Nathan Baca. John Tamer, we have internal documents from the cold case division of the Riverside County Sheriff's Department showing the depth of the investigation. We will not reveal the investigators' identity at this time since the documents show their lives may be in danger. Now we are learning the murders may be a cover-up for one of the federal government's most secret computer programs. Promise is the name of one of the government's most secret computer database programs. Computer programmer Michael Riconosciuto wrote in this affidavit that major modifications to the program were made here in Indio. On July 1st, 1981, Fred Alvarez, his girlfriend Patty Castro, and friend Ralph Bogert were shot to death here on Bob Hope Drive in Rancho Mirage. There was a house here that has since been bulldozed. Nobody was ever arrested for the shooting. Family friends say Cabazon Band of Mission Indians Vice Chairman Fred Alvarez was going to blow the whistle on this. Documents from the early 1980s showing a business partnership between defense contractor Wackenhut Services and Cabazon manager John Philip Nichols to form Cabazon Arms. One of their alleged projects was the Promise Computer Program. 
database and pattern recognition software was a new source of information and power in the early 1980s. It starts when the program's designers, Inslaw Corporation, accused the U.S. Justice Department of stealing the software for their own foreign policy purposes. This programmer testified he altered the program to create what's called a backdoor to allow government spying. This happened while working on Cabazon Indian sovereign land. Well, the parties that were involved in the uh, distribution of this software uh, were involved in covert operations, and they were involved in uh, uh, Nicaragua and Central America, and they were involved in uh, operations in the Middle East. This U.S. Justice Department memo from 1985 shows the promised software was being sold to Middle Eastern arms dealers and wanted no paperwork or customs inspections to interfere. Even unsolved mysteries got on the case when the last journalist to investigate this spy scandal was found dead in his hotel room. Danny Casolero's wrists were slashed in 1991. It was ruled a suicide. But his reporter notes disappeared, and the book on the conspiracy he was to title Indio was never finished. Congressional hearings were held in 1992. It describes the committee's investigation into serious allegations that high-level Department of Justice officials were involved in a criminal conspiracy to force Inslaw, a small computer company, out of business. The hearings ended inconclusively. The Promise software was allegedly altered on tribal land in India with a lack of federal oversight. And just like Microsoft Windows, the database program kept up with the times, upgraded several times over the years. But Promise came back to haunt America in ways never imagined. Oh, a disturbing indication that Robert Hansen, the FBI man accused of spying for the Russians in what officials said at the time of his arrest was a massive security breach, ended up helping Osama bin Laden. As correspondent Carl Cameron reports, Hansen sold the Russians an extremely sensitive piece of U.S. technology, and the indications are that they, in turn, sold it to bin Laden's al-Qaeda terrorist network. From an office in India to foreign capitals all over the world, several murder investigations are connected to this spy scandal. Whether answers can still be found 27 years later remains in the hands of the sheriff's cold case squad. The internal documents we've obtained and confidential interviews we've done reveal the Riverside County Sheriff's cold case squad is investigating whether DA investigator David McGowan was on this 27-year-old murder case before his 2005 death. We are still looking into whether they've concluded that angle of their questioning. Now, if you have missed any part of this 31-part exclusive investigation, more than one year in the making, log on to our website at KESQ.com. On the right-hand side, click on Special Reports, and then the icon that says Inside the DA's Office and DHS, please. John Tamer, we are looking into more answers, and uh, right now the Camazon Band of Mission Indians still have not responded to our questions uh, at this point. Okay, you're at part 31 of this investigation. Where is it going next? Well, the next part we look forward to doing is uh, revealing a little bit more of the confidential information, the internal documents, uh, very chilling information where a detective is basically saying that they cannot look uh, their wife in the eyes and tell her that they are w willing to risk the life of their family by pursuing this case. So they're basically asking to get off the case. A lot more on that coming up very soon. Why won't the DA's office say whether or not David McGowan was looking into this? Their official stance is that David McGowan was not looking into this. That is their official stance, according to their spokespeople. But at this point, uh, there have been a lot of questions that have been asked. Uh, friends and partners of uh, David McGowan have been asked questions about what cases he was working on before the 2005 deaths. Okay, thank you, Nathan. Thank you.
Now we're going to get into the Inslaw case. So Ron Rosenbaum wrote that the Inslaw story alone is enough to drive a sane man to madness. Quote, if they ever make a movie of the Inslaw suit, he wrote, it would be called Mr. and Mrs. Smith go to Washington and meet Franz Kafka. Inslaw's founder, William A. Hamilton, in a previous position with the U.S. Justice Department, had helped develop a program called PROMISE, short for Prosecutor's Management Information System. Now, PROMISE, as I understand it, was designed to organize the paperwork generated by law enforcement and the courts. After he left the Justice Department, Hamilton alleged that the government had stolen PROMISE and had distributed it illegally, robbing him of millions of dollars. The department denied this, insisting that they owned it because Hamilton had developed it while working for them. As a result of this dispute, Hamilton and the department had been in litigation since 1983. A federal bankruptcy judge ruled in 1988 that the department had indeed taken the software by trickery, fraud, and deceit, a decision upheld by a federal district court in 1988, but overturned on appeal in 1991. A conspiracy theory developed around the case with allegations that backdoors had been inserted into the software so that that whomever the Justice Department had sold it to could be spied upon. The major source on the conspiracy theory aspect of the case for both Hamilton and later for Casolero was Michael Riconosciuto, described by Rosenbaum as a rogue scientist, weapons designer, platinum miner and alleged crystal meth manufacturer. Reconosciuto had been introduced to a friend of Casolero's by Jeff Steinberg, a long-time top aide in the LaRouche organization. Reconosciuto told Hamilton that he and Earl Bryan, a director of Hard On Inc., a government consulting firm, had paid $40 million to Iranian officials in 1980 to persuade them not to release the American hostages before the conclusion of the presidential election that saw Ronald Reagan elected President of the United States. This is the claim now known as the October Surprise. In exchange for his helping the Reagan administration, Bryan was allegedly allowed to profit from the illegal distribution of the promise system, according to Reconosciuto. Brian, a close friend of then-Attorney General Ed Messi, had denied any involvement in either October Surprise or the Inslaw case. Well, the parties that were involved in the uh, distribution of this software uh, were involved in covert operations, and they were involved in uh, uh, Nicaragua and Central America, and they were involved in uh, operations in the Middle East. And uh, yes, I have direct knowledge of uh, funds uh, from the sale of uh, this product uh, being used uh, to finance those operations. In addition to this allegation, Reconosciuto also claimed in a March 21, 1991 affidavit submitted to the court in the Inslaw case that he had modified Inslaw's software at the Justice Department's behest so that it could be sold to dozens of foreign governments with a secret backdoor, which allowed outsiders to access computer systems using Promise. These modifications allegedly took place at the Cabazon Indian Reservation near Indo, California, because the reservation was sovereign territory where enforcement of U.S. law was sometimes problematic. Reconosciuto further claimed that he had worked on weapons programs there for the Wackenhut Corporation, such as a powerful fuel-air explosive. On March 29th of 1991, eight days after submitting the affidavit, Reconosciuto was arrested for, and later convicted of, distributing methamphetamine and methadone, charges that he said were a setup to keep him from telling his story. Now, I will touch on that in a little bit later. I actually do agree that I reckon that Reconosciuto was definitely set up. Michael Reconosciuto, again, I'll touch on this later in the podcast, was definitely a very interesting individual. Basically, he made all these claims that I think about 90% of them weren't able to be backed up. I mean, he made claims, especially in the book by the late Jim Keith and Ken Thomas, uh, Danny Castellaro and the Octopus. In the book, it stated that, that Michael Reconosciuto made a number of very interesting claims, one of them being that he had been at the live autopsy of an alien 
Chilean and that he'd also had a passport that would have linked him to the uh, October Surprise Theory. The problem is every time that he was asked to show evidence, and I'll go into a lot of this later on in the podcast, I'm foreshadowing a little bit, but basically he made all these claims. He even got Danny Casolero wound up into it and Danny actually served as, I think he spent 10 days serving as an investigator for Michael Reconosciuto during his court trial. He made all these claims, none of some of which he was able to back up, none of which was ever really able to be proven. I mean, when I say some of it was able to be backed up, I mean, it was true that he'd worked here and there, he'd, he'd made an argon laser, he'd done all these things. The more extravagant claims he made, I believe none of them have ever really been proven. Like, he was there for the autopsy of an alien, he had this passport, allegedly, that linked him to the 1980s October surprise theory. Problem was, he was never able to produce any evidence of a lot of what he had to say. Like, for example, he never was able to produce produced the passport that he allegedly claimed would have proven the October surprise theory. He said that he had a tape in which he was threatened by Justice Department officials if he testified in the case on the side of the uh, the Hamiltons for Inslaw. However, he told Casalero about this, and it, as detailed in the book The Octopus by Jim Keith, or the late Jim Keith, I should say, he was never able to prove this. Danny went in search of the tape because Michael Reconosciuto said two of the tapes were taken and destroyed, but he made a third copy of the tape, or a rumoured third copy, and he threw it out the car window, and or he gave it to somebody, or there were various different theories on what exactly happened to the tape. Danny went in search of the tape and was never able to find it. He went, As Danny claimed, he went on a wild goose chase down a rabbit hole that led nowhere, really. So, while I believe that what Reconosciuto said is true, and actually did happen, the problem is verifying it. Because you can't just believe what somebody says without the evidence. And unfortunately for Casalero, unfortunately for Reconosciuto, and unfortunately for Bill and Nancy Hamilton, none of what Reconosciuto said was ever really able to be backed up at all, which was the problem. I'm, I'm sure, I'm convinced that what Reconosciuto said is true. Absolutely convinced. But the problem is proving it. I have no doubt that everything he said is true. Maybe the alien autopsy not so much, but nothing would surprise me if that turned out to be true later down the track. However, what I'm saying is, is that I think that there is some validity to his story. I think that he did put a back door in there. I think he did do some dodgy things on the Cabazon Indian Reservation problem is there's no proof to back it up. There's what he tells us, but there's nothing to back it up with, unfortunately. So... That's, that's been the major problem in the case, is not being able to back up what he says. Now we get into the Inslaw case. So Inslaw Inc. is a Washington, D.C.-based information technology company that markets case management software for corporate and government users. Now Inslaw is well known for developing Promise, an early case management software system. It is also known for a lawsuit that it brought against the United States Department of Justice in 1986 over Promise. Inslaw won damages in bankruptcy court, but those were overturned on appeal. The suit resulted in several Justice Department internal reviews two congressional investigations, the appointment of a special counsel by Attorney General William P. Barr, and a lengthy review of the special counsel's report under Attorney General Janet Reno. Inslaw's claims were finally referred by Congress to the Court of Federal Claims in 1995, and the dispute ended with the court's ruling against Inslaw in 1998. During the 12-year-long legal proceedings, Inslaw accused the Department of Justice of conspiring to steal its software, attempting to drive it into Chapter 7 liquidation, using the stolen software for covert intelligence operations against foreign governments and involvement in a murder. These accusations were eventually rejected by the Special Counsel and the Court of Federal Claims. 
Now we'll get into a bit of a history of Inslaw. So Inslaw began as a non-profit organization called, called the Institute for Law and Social Research. The institute was founded in 1973 by William A. Hamilton to develop case management software for law enforcement office automation. Funded by grants and contracts from the Law Enforcement Assistant Administration, LEAA, the institute developed a program it called PROMIS, an acronym for Prosecutors Management Information System, for use in law enforcement record keeping and case monitoring activities. When Congress voted to abolish the LEAA in 1980, Hamilton decided to continue operating as a for-profit corporation and market the software to current and new users. In January of 1981, Hamilton established the for-profit Inslaw, transferring the institute's assets over to the new corporation. Promise software was originally written in COBOL for use on mainframe computers. Later a version was developed to run on 16-bit mini-computers, such as the Digital Equipment Corporation PDP-11. The primary users of this early version of the software were the United States Attorney's Office of the District of Columbia and state and local law enforcement. Both the mainframe and 16-bit mini-computer versions of Promise were developed under LEAA contracts, and in later litigation, both Inslaw and DOJ, Department of Justice, eventually agreed that the early version of Promise was in the public domain, meaning that neither the Institute nor its successor had exclusive rights to it. In 1979, the DOJ contracted with the Institute to do a pilot project that installed versions of Promise in four U.S. attorney's offices, two using the mini-computer version and the other two a word processor version which the Institute was developing. Encouraged by the results, the department decided in 1981 to go ahead with a full implementation of locally-based Promise systems and issued a request for proposals, RFP, to install the mini-computer version of Promise in the 20 largest United States attorney's offices. This contract usually called the implementation contract and later litigation also included developing and installing word processor versions of Promise at 74 smaller offices. The now-for-profit Inslaw responded to the RFP and in March of 1982 was awarded the three-year $10 million contract by the contracting division, the Executive Office of United States Attorneys, EOUSA. The contract, however, did not go smoothly. Dis disputes between EOUSA and Inslaw began soon after its execution. A key dispute over proprietary rights had to be solved by a bilateral change to the original contract. EOUSA also determined that Inslaw was in violations of the term of, of an advance payment clause in the contract. This clause, as I understand it, was important to Inslaw's financing and became the subject of months of negotiations. There were also disputes over service fees. During the first year of the contract, the DOJ did not have the hardware to run Promise in any of the offices covered by the contract. As a stopgap measure, Inslaw provided Promise on a timeshare basis through a VAX computer in Virginia, allowing the offices to access Promise on the Inslaw VAX through remote terminals until the needed equipment was installed on site. EOUSA claimed that Inslaw had overcharged for this service and withheld payments. The DOJ ultimately acquired Prime Computers and Inslaw began installing Promise on these in the second year of the contract, in August of 1983. The word processor Promise installation, however, continued to have problems, and in February of 1984, the DOJ cancelled this portion of the contract. Following this cancellation, the financial condition of Inslaw worsened, and the company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in February of 1985. The implementation contract called for the installation of the mini-computer version of Promise, plus some later modifications that had also been funded by LEAA contracts and, like the mini-computer version, were in the public domain. 
In addition, the Contract Data Rights Clause gave the government unlimited rights in any technical data and computer software delivered under the contract. This presented a potential conflict with Inslaw's plans to market a commercial version of Promise, which it called Promise 82, or Enhanced Promise. The issue came up early in the implementation contract, but was resolved by an exchange of letters in which the DOJ signed off on the issue after Inslaw ensured the DOJ that Promise 82 contained enhancements undertaken by Inslaw at private expense after the cessation of LEA funding. The issue arose again in December of 1982 when the DOJ invoked its contract rights to recall all the promised programs and documentation being provided under the contract. The reason the DOJ gave for this request in later litigation was that it was concerned about Inslaw's financial condition. At that point, DOJ had access to promise only through the VAX timesharing agreement with Inslaw. If Inslaw failed, DOJ would be left without a copy of the software and data it was entitled to under the contract. Inslaw responded in February of 1983 that it was willing to provide the computer tapes and documents for Promise, but that the tapes it had were for the VAX version of Promise and included proprietary enhancements. Before providing the tapes, Inslaw wrote, Inslaw and the Department of Justice will have to reach an agreement on the inclusion or exclusion of the features. End quote. The DOJ response to Inslaw was to emphasize that the implementation contract called for a version of Promise in which the government had unlimited rights to ask for information about the enhancements Inslaw claimed as proprietary. Inslaw agreed to provide this information, but noted that it would be difficult to remove the enhancements from the timesharing version of Promise, and offered to provide the VAX version of Promise if the DOJ would agree to limit the distribution. In March of 1983, the DOJ again informed Inslaw that the implementation contract required Inslaw to produce software in which the government had unlimited rights and that delivery of software with restrictions would not satisfy the contract. Now we get into Inslaw's bankruptcy case, and this is where things take a very sinister but yet interesting turn. After Inslaw filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in February of 1985, there were still disputes over implementation contract payments, and as a result, the DOJ was listed as one of Inslaw's creditors. At the same time, the DOJ continued its office automation program, and in place of the originally planned word processor versions of Promise, it installed the version ported to Prime Mini computers in at least 23 more offices. When Inslaw learned of the installations, it notified EOUSA that this was in violation of Modification 12 and filed a claim for $2.9 million, which Inslaw said was a license fee for the software DOJ self-installed. Inslaw also filed claims for services performed during the contract for a total of $4.1 million. The DOJ contracting officer, Peter Vildenix, denied all these claims. Inslaw appealed the denial of the service fees to the Justice of Transportation Board of Contract Appeals, DOTBCA, for the data rights claim. However, Inslaw took a different approach. In June of 1986, it filed an adversary hearing in the bankruptcy court claiming the DOJ's actions violated the automatic stay provision of the bankruptcy code by interfering with the company's rights to use its software. Inslaw's initial filing claimed that the contract disputes arose because of the DOJ officials who administered the contract were biased against Inslaw. The filing specifically mentioned Promise Project Manager C. Madison Brewer and Associate Attorney General D. Lowell Jensen. Brewer had previously been Inslaw's general counsel, but according to Inslaw, had been terminated for cause. Inslaw claimed that Brewer's dismissal caused him to be unreasonably biased against Inslaw and owner William Hamilton. Jensen was a member of the Project Oversight Committee at the time of the contract. He had helped to develop another competing case management software system several years earlier, and Inslaw claimed that this led him to be prejudiced against Promise so that, he, so that he ignored the unreasonable bias of Brewer. 
In February of 1987, Insula requested an independent handling hearing to force the DOJ to conduct adversary hearing independent of any Department of Justice officials involved in the allegations made in the hearing. The bankruptcy court judge assigned to handle Insula's Chapter 11 proceedings, Judge Joseph Basin, agreed the request and scheduled the hearing for June. Prior to the hearing, Inslaw owners William and Nancy Hamilton spoke to Anthony Pesciuto, then the Deputy Director of the Executive Office of the United States Trustees, EOUST, a DOJ component responsible for overseeing the administration of bankruptcy cases. Pesciuto told the Hamiltons that Director of the EOUST, Thomas Stanton, had pressured the U.S. trustees assigned to the Inslaw case, Edward White, to convert Inslaw's bankruptcy from Chapter 11, Reorganization of the Company, to Chapter 7, Liquidation. The Hamiltons had Inslaw's attorneys depose the people whom Pesciuto had named. One of them corroborated part of Pesciuto's claims. Cornelius Blackshear, then a U.S. trustee in New York, swore in his deposition testimony that he was aware of pressure to convert the bankruptcy. Two days later, however, Blackshear admitted it, submitted an affidavit recanting his testimony, saying that he had mistakenly recalled an instance of pressure from another case. Blackshear repeated his retraction at the June hearing on Inslaw's request. Pesciuto also retracted part of his claims at, his, at this hearing and said that instead he did not use the word conversion. Judge Basin, however, chose to believe the original depositions of Pesciuto and Blackshear and found that the DOJ unlawfully, intentionally, and willfully tried to convert Inslaw's Chapter 11 reorganization case to a Chapter 7 liquidation without justification and by improper means. In the ruling, Basin was harshly critical of the testimony of several DOJ officials, describing it as evasive and unbelievable, or simply on its face unbelievable. He enjoined the DOJ and the EOUST from contacting anyone in the U.S. Trustee's Office hand the Inslaw case except for information requests. Now we get on to the adversary hearing. So Inslaw's adversary hearing followed a month after the independent handling hearing. The proceeding lasted for two and a half weeks from late July to August. In a bench ruling on September 28th, Judge Basin found that DOJ project manager Brewer, believing he had been wrongfully discharged by Mr. Hamilton and Inslaw and developed an intense and abiding hatred for Mr. Hamilton and Inslaw and had used his position at DOJ to vent his spleen. He also found that the DOJ took, converted, stole Inslaw's and promised by trickery, fraud, and deceit. Specifically, he found that the DOJ had used the threat of terminating advance payments to get a copy of the enhanced promise that it was not entitled to, and that it had negotiated modification 12 of the contract in bad faith, never intending to meet its commitment under the modification. In his ruling, Judge Basin again called the testimony of DOJ witnesses biased, unbelievable, and unreliable. Now, this is where things get rather interesting, and I think there's a sinister aspect that has crept into this. That was Judge Basin was not reappointed to the bench. So, interestingly enough, Bankruptcy ju Court Judge Basin was, a, was appointed to the District of Columbia Bankruptcy Court in February of 1984 for a four-year term. He sought reappointment in early 1987, but was informed in December that the Court of Appeals had chosen another candidate. Judge Basin then suggested in a letter to the Court of Appeals that DOJ might might have improperly influenced the selection process because of his bench ruling for Inslaw. After learning of this letter, DOJ lawyers moved to recuse Judge Basin from the Inslaw case, but their motion was rejected and Judge Basin remained on the case until the expiration of his term on February 8th of 1988. In early February, Judge Basin filed a lawsuit seeking to prevent the judge the Court of Appeals had selected for the District of Columbia Bankruptcy Court from taking office, but the suit was rejected. Basin's last actions in the case were to file a written ruling on Inslaw's advisory hearing and to award damages and attorney fees to Inslaw.
after Judge Basin left the bench, the Insel bankruptcy was assigned to Baltimore bankruptcy judge James Schneider. Schneider accepted Insel's reorganization plan at the end of 1988 after a cash infusion from IBM. DOJ filed an appeal of Judge Basin's adversary suit ruling in the District of Columbia Circuit Court. In November of 1989, Circuit Court Judge William Bryant upheld Basin's ruling. Reviewing the case under the clear error standard for reversal, Bryant wrote, There is convincing, perhaps compelling support for the finding set forth by the bankruptcy court, end quote. DOJ appealed the circuit court decision, and in May of 1991, the Court of Appeals found the DOJ had not violated the automatic stay provisions of the bankruptcy code, and that the bankruptcy court therefore lacked jurisdiction over Inslaw's claims against DOJ. It vacated the bankruptcy court's rulings and dismissed Inslaw's complaint. Inslaw appealed the decision to the Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. Now we get into the several investigations that were launched after this. So Inslaw's allegations against the Justice Department led to a number of investigations, including internal department probes and congressional investigations by the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, PSI, and the House Judiciary Committee. The DOJ eventually appointed a special counsel to investigate, and after the special counsel issued his report, Inslaw responded with a lengthy rebuttal. The DOJ then re-examined the special counsel's findings, resulting in the release of a final department review. During these federal investigations, Inslaw began making allegations of a broad, complex conspiracy to steal promise involving many more people and many more claims than the bankruptcy proceedings had covered. After Judge Basin's June 1987 bench ruling found several DOJ officials' testimony unbelievable, DOJ's Office of Professional Responsibility, OPR, opened an investigation of DOJ staff who testified at the hearing, including C. Madison Brewer, Peter Vidanex, and EOUST Director Thomas Stanton. It also opened a separate investigation of EOUST Deputy Director Anthony Pesciuto. OPR recommended Pesciuto be terminated based on his hearing testimony that he, had, that he had made false statements to the Hamiltons, but in its final report it found no evidence that the other officials investigated had applied pressure to convert Enzo's bankruptcy or lied during the independent handling hearing. After Judge Basin issued his written ruling in January of 1988, Enzo's attorneys also complained to the DOJ's public integrity section that, that Judge Blackshear and U.S. trustee Edward White had committed perjury. Public Integrity opened an investigation that ultimately found perjury cases could not be proven and recommended declining prosecution. Then we get to the Senate report. So the first congressional investigation into the Inslaw case came from the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, PSI. PSI's report was issued in September of 1989 after a year and a half of investigation. During the investigation, Inslaw made a number of new allegations which take up most of the PSI report. Inslaw's new allegations described the Justice Department dispute with Inslaw as part of a broad conspiracy to drive Inslaw into bankruptcy so that Earl Bryan, the founder of a venture capital firm called Biotech, later Infotechnology, could acquire Inslaw's assets, including its software Promise. Inslaw owner William Hamilton told PSI investigators that Bryan had first attempted to acquire Inslaw through a computer services corporation he controlled called Hardon. Hamilton said that he rejected an offer from Hardon to acquire Inslaw and that Brian had attempted to drive Inslaw into bankruptcy through his influence with Attorney General Edward Messi. Both Messi and Brian had served in the cabinet of Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California, and Messi's wife had later bought stock in Brian's company so that Messi was willing to do this, Brian claimed. The contract dispute with DOJ was contrived by Brian and Messi with the help of Associate Attorney General Jensen and Promise Project Manager Brewer. 
Hamilton also complained that a DOJ automation program, Project Eagle, was part of a scheme to benefit Brian after he acquired Promise and that an AT&T subsidiary, AT&T Information Systems, had engaged with the DOJ in a conspiracy to interfere with Inslaw's efforts to reorganize. He also told PSI investigators that the DOJ had undermined bankruptcy court judge Basins of reappointment and had attempted to undermine Inslaw's legal counsel in the bankruptcy suit. Senate investigators, however, found no proof of any of these claims. Their report noted that the bankruptcy court ruling had not concluded that Jensen had engaged in a conspiracy against Inslaw, and that their own investigation had found no proof that Jensen and Messi had conspired to ruin Inslaw or steal its product, or that Brian or Hardon were involved in a conspiracy to undermine Inslaw and acquire its assets. The report did re-examine the bankruptcy findings that the DOJ had pressured the United States trustee to recommend converting Inslaw's bankruptcy from Chapter 11 to Chapter 7, and found that EOUST Director Thomas Stanton had improperly tried to get special counseling for Inslaw's bankruptcy. He did this, the report stated, in order to gain support for the EOUST from the DOJ. The report concluded that the subcommittee found no proof for a broad conspiracy against Inslaw within the DOJ or a conspiracy between DOJ officials and outside parties to force Inslaw into bankruptcy for personal benefit. However, it criticized DOJ for hiring a former Inslaw employee, Brewer, to oversee Inslaw's contract with EOUSA and for failing to show standard procedures in handling Inslaw's complaints. It also criticized the DOJ for a lack of cooperation with the subcommittee, which delayed the investigation and undercut the subcommittee's ability to interview department employees. Now we get to the House report on, on the subject. So, following the PSI report, the House Judiciary Committee began another investigation into the dispute. By the time the report was released in September of 1992, Inslaw's bankruptcy suit had been first upheld in the D.C. Circuit Court, then vacated by the D.C. Appeals Court. The House report thus took a different approach to several of the legal issues that the Senate report had discussed. Like the Senate report, much of the House report dealt with new evidence and new allegations from Inslaw. Inslaw's new evidence consisted of statements and affidavits from witnesses supporting Inslaw's previous claims. The most important of these witnesses was Michael Reconosciuto, who swore in an affidavit for Inslaw that businessman Earl Bryan had provided him with a copy of Inslaw's enhanced promise, supporting Inslaw's earlier claims that Bryan had been interested in acquiring and marketing the software. A new allegation was also introduced in Reconosciuto's affidavit. Reconosciuto swore that he had added modifications to enhanced promise to support a plan for the implementation of promise and law enforcement and intelligence agencies worldwide. According to Recon Asciutto, Earl W. Bryan was spearheading the plan for this worldwide use of the promised computer software. Another important witness was Eri Ben Menashe, who also provided affidavits for Inslaw that Brian had brought both public domain and enhanced versions of Promise to Israel and eventually sold the enhanced version to the Israeli government. Committee investigators interviewed Ben Menashe in May of 1991, and he told them that Brian sold enhanced Promise to both Israeli intelligence and Singapore's armed forces, receiving several million dollars in payment. He also testified that Brian sold public domain versions to Iraq and Jordan. On the issue of Inslaw's rights and enhanced promise, the House report found that there appears to be strong evidence supporting Judge Basin's finding that DOJ acted willfully and fraudulently when it took, converted, and stole Inslaw's enhanced promise by trickery, fraud, and deceit. Like Judge Basin, the report found that DOJ did not negotiate with Inslaw in good faith, citing a statement by Deputy Attorney General Arnold Burns as one of the most damaging statements received by the committee. According to the report, Burns told OPR investigators that Department Attorney 
attorneys informed him in 1986 that Inslaw's claim of proprietary rights was legitimate and that DOJ would probably lose a court on this issue. House investigator found it incredible that DOJ would pursue litigation after such a determination and concluded, this clearly raises the suspect that the department actions taken against Inslaw in this matter represent an abuse of power of shameful proportions, end quote. On the new allegations brought by Inslaw, although the committee conducted extensive investigations, the report did not make any factual findings on the allegations. It did conclude that further investigation was warranted into the statements and claims of Inslaw's witnesses. The report also discussed the case of Danny Kessellera, a freelance writer who became interested in the Inslaw case in 1990 and began his own investigation. According to statements from Kessellera's friends and family, the scope of his investigation eventually expanded to include a number of scandals of the time, including the Iran-Contra affair, the October surprise conspiracy claims and the BCCI banking scandal. In August of 1991, Casalero was found dead in a hotel room where he was staying. The initial coroner's report ruled his death a suicide, but Casalero's family and friends were suspicious and a lengthy second autopsy was conducted. This too ruled Casalero's death a suicide, but House investigators noted that the suspicious circumstances surrounding his death have led some law enforcement professionals and others to believe that his death may not have been a suicide and strongly urged further investigation. The Democratic majority majority called upon Attorney General Dick Thornborough to compensate Inslaw immediately for the harm that the government had egregiously inflicted on Inslaw. The Republican minority dissented and the committee divided along party lines 21 to 13. Now we get into the very, very interesting and controversial Boer report. So in October of 1991, William P. Barr succeeded Dick Thornburgh as Attorney General. In November, Barr appointed retired federal judge Nicholas J. Boer as a special counsel to investigate the allegations in the Inslaw case. Boer was granted authority to appoint his own staff and investigators, to impanel a grand jury, and to issue subpoenas. In March of 1993, he issued a 267-page report. The report concluded there was no credible evidence to support Inslaw's allegations that DOJ officials conspired to help Earl Bryan acquire Promise software and that the evidence was overwhelming that there was no connection between Bryan and Promise. It found the evidence woefully insufficient to support the claim that DOJ obtained enhanced Promise through fraud, trickery and deceit or that DOJ illegally distributed Promise inside or outside of DOJ. It found no credible evidence that DOJ had influenced the selection process that replaced Judge Basin. It found insufficient evidence to confirm the allegation that DOJ DOJ employees sought to influence the conversion of Inslaw's bankruptcy or commit perjury to conceal the attempt to do so. Finally, it concluded that the DOJ had not sought to influence the investigation of Danny Kessler's death and that the physical evidence strongly supported the autopsy findings of suicide. Boer's report came to a number of conclusions that contradicted earlier proceedings and investigations. Judge Basin had found that DOJ's claim it was concerned about Inslaw's financial condition when it requested a copy of Promise was a false pretext. Boer rejected this finding as just plain wrong. The House report had cited Deputy Attorney General Burns' statement as evidence that DOJ knew that it did not have a valid defense to Inslaw's claims. Boer found this interpretation entirely unwarranted. Boer was particularly critical of several of Inslaw's witnesses. He found that Michael Reconosciuto had given inconsistent accounts and statements to the Hamiltons, his affidavit and his testimony at his 1992 trial for manufacturing methamphetamine. Boer compared Reconosciuto's story about promise to a historical novel, a tale of total fiction woven against the background of accurate historical facts, end quote. 
Boer also found Iri Ben Minishi's affidavits for Inslaw inconsistent with his later statements to Boer, in which Ben Minishi said that he had no knowledge of the transfer of Inslaw's proprietary software by Earl Bryan or DOJ, and denied that he'd ever said this elsewhere. Ben Minishi said that others simply assumed that he was referring in his previous statements to Inslaw's promise, but acknowledged that one reason he failed to clarify this was because he was going to publish a book, and he wanted to make sure that his affidavit was filed in court and came to the attention of the public." End quote. Boer also noted that the House October Surprise Task Force had examined Ben Minishi's October Surprise allegations and found them totally lacking in credibility, demonstrably false from beginning to end, riddled with inconsistencies and factual misstatements, and a total fabrication. He specifically observed that the task force found no evidence to substantiate Ben Minishi's October Surprise allegations about Earl Bryan. Then we come to the DOJ review. So Inslaw responded to the Boer report with a 130-page rebuttal and another set of new allegations in an addendum. These allegations included the claim that the DOJ's Office of Special Investigations was a front for the Justice Department's own covert intelligence service, end quote, and that another undeclared mission of the Justice Department's covert agents was to ensure that the investigative journalist Danny Casalura remained silent about the role of the Justice Department in the Inslaw scandal by murdering him in West Virginia in August of 1991, end quote. By this time, Janet Reno had, had succeeded Barr as Attorney General after Bill Clinton's election as President. Reno then asked for a review of Boer's report with recommendations on appropriate actions. In September of 1994, the department released a 187-page review written by Assistant Associate Attorney General John C. Dwyer, which concluded that there is no credible evidence that department officials conspired to steal computer software developed by Inslaw Inc. or that the company is entitled to additional government payments. The review also reaffirmed the earlier police findings that Casalero's death was a suicide, which I don't agree with, and rejected Inslaw's claims that OSI agents had murdered Casalero as fantasy, with no corroborative evidence that is even marginally credible. In May of 1995, the United States Senate asked the U.S. Court of Federal Claims to determine if the United States owed Inslaw compensation for the government use of promise. On July 31st of 1997, Judge Christine Miller, the hearing officer for the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, ruled that all of the versions of promise were in the public domain and that the government had therefore always been free to do whatever it wished with promise. The following year, the appellate authority, a three-judge review panel of the same court, upheld Miller's ruling and in August of 1998 informed the Senate of its findings. A 1990 book by the British journalist Gordon Thomas titled Gideon's Spies, The Secret History of the Mossad, repeated the claims of Eri Ben Menashe that Israeli intelligence created and marketed a Trojan horse version of promise in order to spy on intelligence agencies in other countries. In 2001, the Washington Times and Fox News each quoted federal law enforcement officials familiar with debriefing former FBI agent Robert Hansen as claiming that the convicted spy had stolen copies of a promise derivative for his Soviet KGB handlers. However, later reports and studies of Hansen's activities have not repeated these claims. Now we get into what the actual Promise software was. So Promise, which was Prosecutor's Management Information System, was a case management software developed by Inslaw, formerly the Institute for Law and Social Research, a non-profit organization established in 1973 by Bill and Nancy Hamilton. The software program was developed with aid from the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration to aid prosecutors' offices in tracking in 1982, by which time Inslaw became a for-profit entity. Inslaw received a $10 million contract by the Justice Department to develop and improve Promise application for the U.S. Attorney's offices. Having previously developed a 16-bit version of Promise, Inslaw developed a 32-bit version for various operating systems, specifically VAX, VMS, Unix, OS 400, and in the 1990s, Windows NT. 
The Hamiltons and the Justice Department engaged in an unusually bitter contract dispute over the software and Inslaw entered bankruptcy. The Hamiltons sued the federal government, alleging that the Justice Department had dishonestly conspired to drive Inslaw out of business through trickery, fraud, and deceit by withholding payments to Inslaw and then pirating the software. A bankruptcy court and federal district court agreed with the Hamiltons, although these rulings were later vacated by a court of appeals for jurisdictional reasons. Hamiltons and others asserted that the Justice Department had done so in order to modify Promise, originally created to manage legal cases to become a monitoring software for intelligence operations. Affidavits created over the course of the Inslaw affair stated that Promise was given or sold at a profit to Israel and as many as 80 other countries by Dr. Earl W. Bryan, a man with close personal and business ties to then-President Ronald Reagan and then-Presidential Counsel Edwin Messi. In September of 1992, a House Judiciary Committee report raised serious concerns that Justice Department officials had schemed to destroy Inslaw and co-opt the rights to its promised software and had misappropriated the software. The report was the outgrowth of a three-year investigation led by Jack Brooks, the committee's chairman who had launched an investigation in 1989. The report faulted the Justice Department for a lack of cooperation in the investigation and found that there appears to be strong evidence, as indicated by the findings in two federal court proceedings, as well as by the committee investigation, that the Department of Justice acted willfully and fraudulently and took, converted, and stole Inslaw's enhanced promise by trickery, fraud, and deceit. A book written in 1997 by Fabrizio Calvi and Thierry Fitzer claimed that the National Security Agency, NSA, had been seeding computers abroad with promise-embedded smart systems management automated reasoning tools, chips, codenamed Petrie, capable of covertly downloading data and transmitting it using electrical wiring as an antenna to a U.S. intelligence satellite as part of an espionage operation. In in the early 1980s, Manchur Gorbanefer and Adnan Kagoshi both had facilitated the transaction of Promise software to Khalid bin Mafuz, a prominent Saudi billionaire. I do apologize if I get these names wrong. I have no idea exactly how to pronounce these names, so I do apologize. The media mogul and alleged Israeli spy Robert Maxwell was involved in selling the Promise software, and Bill and Nancy Hamilton also discovered that the Canadian government had acquired Promise despite the fact that they did not sell it to Canada. My understanding of how that worked was the, or the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, approached Inslaw asking for instructions on how to use this software, because apparently they weren't given one, and the Hamiltons then kind of had to raise their eyebrows of that and say, well, we never sold it to Canada. How did you get your hands on our software? And that created a whole big new storm of, of bullshit, because then they started asking questions, well, how come you've got our software if we never gave it to you? So that started a whole new realm of, of problems for Inslaw and for the Department of Justice. Now we're going to talk more about Michael Riconosciuto. So Michael Riconosciuto is an electronics and computer expert who was arrested in early 1991, shortly after providing Inslaw Inc. with an affidavit in support of their lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Justice. Riconosciuto professed a defense centered on the Inslaw affair, a legal case in which the U.S. government was charged with illegal use of computer software. Riconosciuto claimed to have reprogrammed Inslaw's case management program, Promise, with a secret backdoor to allow clandestine tracking of individuals. Riconosciuto stated that he had been threatened with prosecution by a Justice Department official. Riconosciuto provided an affidavit detailing threats to a House Select Committee investigating the Inslaw affair. Now, as I understand it, the Justice Department approached him and they gave him a choice. They said, you can either join us or you can join Inslaw. They said that if... Michael Riconosciuto explained it, that they said, well, if you join us... Apparently, Riconosciuto was going through a very harsh bankru- a, a very harsh child custody battle with a former 
partner of his and they said to him well look if you join us against Inslaw and you promise not to say anything or defend Inslaw against us we're going to help you out in this custody dispute and everything will go your way meaning that they would make sure that Recon Asciutto for helping them would get custody of his children and his, and his partner would lose so they were going to try and throw they were, they were going to in a way make things go in his favour they were going to do some dodgy shady shenanigans behind the scenes and push things in his favour because he helped them kind of like a you scratch my back I'll scratch yours if he didn't Recon Asciutto claimed that they were going to they were going to throw the book at him they were going to do whatever they could to ruin his life they even threatened to as I understand it get him involved and prosecute him along with his father in some business dealings that his father was involved in it's never really clear exactly what business dealings his father was involved in but apparently there were some dodgy dealings that his father was involved with and Recon Asciutto was going to be prosecuted along with him in those dodgy dealings so that's what was meant by when Recon Asciutto stated that he'd been threatened with prosecution now we get into Reconosciuto's early life. So Reconosciuto has demonstrated some technical and scientific talents. As a teenager, he constructed a working argon laser, a feat that earned him an invitation to Stanford University as a research assistant. Reconosciuto was employed as an engineer to mine in Maricopa, California, Hercules Properties Limited, had raised financing and purchased a 167-acre contaminated waste disposal site, which had once been a portion of a 1,300-acre TNT and fertilizer manufacturer known as Hercules Power. Works. Now we get into some of the allegations that he's made. So we start off with the October Surprise. Recon Asciutto stated in 1993 that he had knowledge of the October Surprise conspiracy allegations. Then there was the Cabazon murders. Nathan Backer's Emmy Award-winning series, The Octopus Murders, feature documents from the archives of Michael Recon Asciutto. These documents have been the subject of interest for recently reopened cold case homicide investigations. Then we get into the Inslaw affair. So in early 1991, Recon Asciutto filed an affidavit before a House Judiciary Committee investigating the bankruptcy case of Inslaw Inc. versus United States government. Recon Asciutto was called to testify before Congress regarding the modification of Promise, a case management software program that had been developed for the Department of Justice by Washington, D.C.-based Inslaw Inc. Recon Asciutto declared that he had been under the direction of Earl Bryan, who was then a controlling shareholder and director of Hardon Inc. Hardon was a competitor to Inslaw and was also a government consulting firm with several contracts with the Department of Defense and the CIA. Within eight days of this declaration, Recon Asciutto was arrested for conspiracy to manufacture, conspiracy to distribute, possession with intent to distribute, and with distribution, a total of 10 counts related to methamphetamine and methadone. Now, during his trial, Recon Asciutto accused the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, of stealing two copies of his tape. Recon Asciutto also stated that he himself had disposed of a third tape, that being the tape that I talked about before where he had had an insurance tape where basically he was threatened and it would have proven his case however apparently two of the tapes were stolen and he disposed of a third tape however when Danny Casalero tried to find it he wasn't able to find the tape I did speak about that before in addition to his claims of a government frame-up related to Inslaw Recon Asciutto maintained that the chemical laboratory on his property was in use for the extraction of precious metals such as platinum in a highly specialized mining operation no drug lab contamination was found at the laboratory site and a number of the DOE's hazardous spill response team asserted that the high barium levels on the property were unlikely to be the result of Recon Asciutto's work barium does have specialized usage for metallurgy with regard regards to processing of platinum group metals. 
In his investigations of the allegations surrounding the Inslaw case, Special Counsel's Nicholas J. Boer was particularly critical, as I said before, of several of Inslaw's witnesses. He particularly found that Recon Asciutto had given inconsistent accounts and statements to the Hamiltons, his affidavit, and in testimony at his 1992 trial for manufacturing methamphetamine. I mean, Boer compared Recon Asciutto's story about promise to a historical novel, a tale of total fiction woven against the background of accurate historical facts. Another interesting point that, that was that while in jail, investigators for the Intelligence Committee for the House of Representatives met with Recon Asciutto and took six hours of depositions from him, asked him for proof to back up his claims. Recon Asciutto had marked on his paper attorney-client privilege so that the guards couldn't open them, but they disregarded this and opened the contents and refused to forward it. Instead, according to reports, they contacted the NSA who collected the material to review it. It remains unknown to this day what happened to the material or what the contents of the documents was. A lot of people were, were skeptical of Reconosciuto and his wild claims because he couldn't back up a lot of what he was saying. For example, he claimed he'd been present at the autopsy of an alien and that he knew that 9-11 was going to happen and tried to give out warnings before it did. Another big claim was that he knew about the October surprise, but when asked for his passport to back up this claim, he couldn't. In the summer of 1990, Casalera arranged to meet Bill Hamilton, expressing an interest in pursuing the Inslaw story. Hamilton gave Casalera a 12-page memo Reconosciuto had written detailing his allegations. Rosenbaum writes that, and I quote, The moment he got his hands on that maddening memo with its maze of illusion and reality was the moment Danny's life changed and he began his descent into the obsession that would lead to his death. He was slowly, then rapidly, sucked into a kind of covert ops version of Dungeons and Dragons with this, that memo as his guide and and Recon Michael Reconosciuto as his dungeon master. Next, we shall delve into the myriad of strange deaths that have plagued this case over the years. So stay tuned for part two. <laughs> 